there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. No! Oh, my God. How could he do that? Are you on Don't what? Charles Darwin. Welcome, everybody, back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm your host, Carson Brever, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, we are going to be talking NBA as we love to do. We're going to be asking eight questions about things that have grabbed our attention from throughout the league. And, Logan, the first one that I think sticks out is that the Milwaukee Bucks have been on a real slide as of late. Now, they did just rally with a win last night, but they had lost five straight before that. So for a team that has been so consistently dominant in the regular season, I will ask you, what's wrong with the Bucs? Um, and you talk about their dominance, Carson. Uh, I don't think they're the same dominant team defensively this season. Uh, the last two seasons, 2020 and 2019, they were ranked first in defensive rating this year. They ranked 12th. And as good as they have been at producing threes this season, uh, one of the best in NBA history, they are just as bad at allowing them. Their fifth and three-pointers made this season – their third and three-point percentage. And on the defensive end, they're 27th in three-pointers allowed this year and 25th in opposing teams' three-point percentage. And I think you can attribute this to some of their individual defenders this year. Uh, Drew Holiday has not been the same excellent pick-and-roll defender he always has been. He's 35th percentile. Uh, players are shooting 6% higher um, on their percentage on threes on Drew Holiday. And I, I'm not saying that Drew Holiday is inherently a bad defender. Uh, the Bucks are seven points better with Holiday on the floor defensively, but uh, just individually, they're just really bad at allowing threes. Uh, players are shooting 5.3% higher um, on their threes on Chris Middleton. And if I had to highlight the worst individual defender for the Bucks, Carson, I think it's Brent Forbes. Uh, players are shooting 6.2% higher on their threes uh, this season on Brent Forbes. The Bucks are nine points worse defensively by points per possession with Forbes on the floor. And they are eight points worse by on-off splits uh, by 100, uh, 100 points per possession. Um, he's an elite three-point shooter, Carson. I love Brent Forbes. He has been, he's even awesome to watch alongside Giannis and especially in small movement offense. He's always open in the corner. He's shooting 47% on the year, but he is such a massive defensive liability. I don't even think he should be getting minutes until like 
clutch moments and closeout points of the game. So I think you're absolutely right in diagnosing the problem here as defense because this has been the best regular season defense in basketball. They were 25th in defensive rating over that stretch and have basically been league average or a little bit above that for this entire season. But what's interesting is you talk about them allowing such a high volume of threes and all that. That's by design. They've done that the last couple of years. They led the league in three-point attempts allowed for the last two seasons. The difference is that, as you mentioned, they're allowing people to make threes now. Opponents are making 38.6% of their attempts from deep versus about 35% last year. And I just think this approach of saying, okay, we're going to let you guys take these high volume of threes becomes harder and harder as the league becomes better and better at shooting because obviously the three-point shot is the most efficient in basketball. And they have been so exceptional at taking away the stuff inside the three-point line with funneling guys into Brook Lopez and him being such an imposing rim protector. And obviously with their great defenders on the perimeter and Giannis being that help side guy, that it's been able to work. I don't know if that works long-term though. Do you think it's more of a problem of individually like I noted, or do you think it's rotational um, up and down the roster? So I think there's a few things. First off, I absolutely think that losing Holiday matters because they play at a, the level of a top seven defense with him on the floor. I don't think it's a coincidence by any stretch of the imagination that he goes out, they lose five straight games for the first time in a long time. But I do wonder about some of those cracks in the defensive identity. And I think a lot of what it comes down to is Brooke Lopez because he has been so essential. Now you can say his job is relatively easy. He basically just has to patrol the paint and protect the rim. Doesn't have to do much outside of that at all. But he's gone from 2.4 blocks a game last year to 1.3 this year. And he's not protecting the rim at the same historic levels that he was. He held people 17% below their typical field goal percentage around the rim last year. Still doing very well this year, but if you're going to propel a team to elite defense, allowing this high volume of threes, allowing people to make these many threes, you have to take away everything in the paint, and they have not been able to do that this season. And I have to say, Carson, on your point about Brooke Lopez, uh, I think these last two games against the Raptors, he's been really bad at closing out on players in the lane. He looks just a step slower. Um, I think Brooke Lopez is the where the problem uh, you know, starts and ends. And what's going to be interesting is, is that a problem that we see sustained? Because he is 32. It's possible that he has just taken a little bit of a step back and he's still good. It's just, he has to be great. He has to be essentially perfect at his job. And he has been for the last couple of years and he's not right now. But I also do think another part of this is I don't think the Bucs have the 13th best defense in basketball or whatever. I do think that we're seeing that they're just not giving as full of a night to night effort as they have been the past couple of seasons when they've been so committed to going out there, winning 60 games, proving themselves there. Now they've already done that. If you look at Giannis, he's not having the same kind of defensive season. As you mentioned, Middleton letting people shoot 7.5% better against him this year than last year. Giannis has gone from holding people 13% below their normal shooting last year when he was deploy to just about 3% this year. So I do think effort plays into it, but I also think there are real concerns here. When you look at times when effort should not be questioned, like I think back to their game against the Suns where they were in control early in that one and then just sort of let things slip away in the second half. They haven't been able to lock in defensively at the same level. And without that, I, do you think they can be a true contender? Because I don't. No, Carson. I, I mean, I think we've seen their defensive issues in years or their offensive issues in years past when it comes to playoff time. I still think those are their clutch issues with Chris Middleton and Giannis. Although I will say this year, Carson, Mike Budenholzer has finally taken notes and has finally made a decision that Chris Middleton will be the closer for this team. He's getting way more possessions than Giannis in closing time. But um, no, I think if this is not an elite team defensively and they are allowing this many threes, I have zero faith in them. And Carson, I'll go on record. I don't think the Bucks will be in any sort of playoff contention until they get rid of Coach Bud. I think he is, as much as Brooke Lopez has been a problem defensively, as much as these individual players have been an issue defensively this season, 
I think Coach Bud is one of the biggest problems in Milwaukee. Well, I think the system is culpable for everything. They're formulaic, and this is what we've been saying for a couple of years. They play formulaic basketball. It's not malleable come playoff time. And the defensive end is the epitome of that. They have a system that they believe in completely, but we're seeing teams expose that more and more right now. So the flip side of this is they're playing historically well on the offensive end. They had the best offensive rating of all time until a couple of games ago, and I do think we've seen the upgrade in talent there. Guys playing better basically across the board, shooting the lights out, and all that is fantastic. But I don't know that it matters that much if they can't play defense at the level that they have for the last couple of years. I think there's a very simple formula, Carson. And I don't know how much Giannis would be into this. I think you defensively, I think you have to run Giannis at the five and let him be that closeout guy, that, that lockdown defender. You take a look at the Jazz, who we're going to talk about later in this episode. Uh, they are allowing the least three-pointers attempted uh, in the NBA this season. That's why they've been able to be such an efficient team, uh, purely offensively and defensively, because of what Gobert can do. So... I'm not saying that Giannis is the same defender as Gobert, but I think he has the propensity if he works on it at the five spot to do that. And it also helps you um, in situations because with his limitations offensively because he can't shoot. I think that is another potential solution in Milwaukee, moving Giannis to the five and trying to experiment with that a little bit. It's interesting. I question, though, how much does he excel as a pure rim protector? We've never seen him in that role for extended stretches previously, and I think that he can do it. I don't know if he can do it as well as Brooke Lopez, though, even in this role. And also, I will say, when you put Giannis at the five, you lose some of his rover ability. The fact that he can play free safety out there and force turnovers on the perimeter and how much his length can affect things, how he can operate as a help side shot blocker where he can excel. So I don't know about that. I think it would be a mixed bag. Is there anybody else that you can imagine alongside Giannis, though, with the five in Milwaukee, such as because I definitely think Brooke works in the system. You need a great three-point shooter at the five because of Giannis's limitations from deep. Do you think that – are there any other players in the league that stand out that are that good at three and D at the five spot uh, that may fit alongside this Bucs squad? I wouldn't say anyone who's a significant upgrade. You could go look for a Miles Turner or something like that, but I would rather have Brook Lopez, and I think that that's what they're going to have to ride it out with. And if they fall down by this system, then they'll fall down by this system. That's been what they've done in the years past. They've been able to uh, stomach that for whatever reason and just go down with the ship. So let's look at a team now that is having probably even more trouble out East, and that is the Boston Celtics, who have really been down in the dumps as of late, sitting just around 500. Logan, can they recover to the level that we expected from them with their current roster? The level that we expected of them, I would say no. I think they can recover in general, though. I think we need to remember uh, when we're talking about the Boston Celtics that they have been bitten by the injury and COVID bug uh, just about as hard as anyone else in the league. Uh, Tatum has missed five games this season. Marcus Smart has missed 11. Uh, Kemba Walker has missed 15. Uh, you know, this isn't to say that the Celtics don't have problems. I, I think they have them on both sides of the ball. Um, offensively, uh, they struggled to create three-point opportunities and knock them down. Uh, they attempt the ninth least threes in the NBA this season. And, you know, they've got good shooters like Jalen Brown and Peyton Pritchard. But honestly, Carson, I think this is a drafting mistake, and it comes down to Danny Ainge. I think they were counting on Aaron Neesmith to come in and make more of an immediate impact right now. Um, on that end, because to me, that is exactly what the Celtics are missing on the offensive end, just a knockdown spot up shooter. And, you know, Neesmith has come on as of late. He's had a few good games, but he is certainly not what they expected him to be right out of the gates. Uh, they would be much better off if they had taken someone like Sadiq Bey, who has been elite. But uh, their problems just aren't offensively. I think they are defensively as well. Uh, they've struggled to protect the rim in Daniel Tice's absence. 
Um, and I attribute that to Tristan Thompson on the inside. Inside, six feet, players are shooting 67.9% on Tristan Thompson. That is abysmal for a big man. Overall, players are shooting 56.3% from the field on Thompson. He's got negative six on off splits. They are 3.6 points worse defensively per 100 possessions. They are 3.3 points worse offensively per 100 possessions with Thompson. And I don't mean to take a dump on this guy. He's, he's a great rebounder. He's a great screener. And honestly, Carson offensively, I've seen flashes of his Cleveland self where he will go in there, he will dominate the paint, he will handle the rock a little bit, and he will, you know, just dominate guys in the interior because of how physical he is. Um, but he was brought in to be a dominant rebounder and a dominant defensive presence, and he has not done that off the bench. Yeah, and I do think that that's certainly a spot that the Celtics will likely look to upgrade, and it's something that I think a lot of us diagnosed in the preseason is, is your play at the center position going to be at a high enough level for you to contend? And the answer right now has probably been no, but I also think there's another glaring position that you can point to. And you say that the problem is not all the offense, but I think a lot of the problem is the offense. When you have a league average unit there and the defense has gone from being traditionally top five year in, year out to being around 10th this league, that's not ideal either. But when you have a guy like Kemba Walker, who is so dramatically underperforming, that to me is the biggest component in this disappointment. I think that's something we've seen throughout this entire season. I still think, that he's feeling the injury that he's been battling, or it's at least in his head. Because if you just look at how he's playing, it doesn't look like he's missing that much physically. Maybe it's just because he's generally quicker than everybody else out there and all that, and he can stop on a dime, and he can be such a dynamic scorer in that way. But it just feels like he's lacking some aggression getting downhill. 10% of his shots have come at the rim this year. Career average is 25%. 10% is an insanely low number. His free throw rate is 0.21. His career average is 0.29 getting the line significantly less, shooting 39% on twos. He's obviously not affected from the perimeter. He's shooting the lights out from beyond the arc because, again, there's really no physical factor there. If there's one thing Kemba can do, it's shoot that ball. But I think we're just seeing way too much of him settling from floater range, of him doing a little stop and pop for mid-range. And that's okay offense in the clutch when it's all you can get, and he can be deadly from there. But it's not efficient offense on a night-to-night -night basis. And I also think the other thing that maybe Kemba theoretically could do but hasn't done and didn't really do last year either. I kind of feel like this team just needs a point guard, a real point guard, because you have Brown and Tatum running more pick and roll and they're okay at it, but they're scorers. And Tatum has grown as a playmaker. Brown has grown as a playmaker to become basically average when he was previously terrible there. But these guys are scorers. These dudes can be lethal off the catch. They can be lethal in isolation situations. I don't know if either of them are ready to run high volume pick and roll yet. And with Marcus Smart out, they seem even more lost there as far as lacking a point guard. But even with Smart, I don't really want Marcus Smart as my point guard if I'm trying to contend in the playoffs. So that's a big issue. And I also do think one more thing that we overestimated about this team is their depth because they really only have seven legit guys. Grant Williams is okay. Semi has had his moments. He had a pretty big game. But for the most part, I don't want him playing in any sort of significant playoff minutes. And I think they really miss the minutes where Hayward could just run mm -hmm. with the second unit where he could be the guy in stretches, he could facilitate, he could handle the ball, he get you buckets on all three levels. Now they don't have that. Whatever they expected of Jeff Teague, he has certainly not been. He's been atrocious. And so I think all that together just makes me think the Celtics flat out aren't as good as we thought. And that, yeah, they can turn it around as far as being better than they are right now. But no way are they challenging for the Eastern Conference title right now. Well, and I think you touched on the bigger overarching problems, Carson. Uh, definitely rotational depth is an issue. Uh, I want to touch on that guard spot, though, Carson. You talk about Jeff T. He is shooting career low from zero to three feet. He's shooting career low from three to ten feet. 
to put it simply, Jeff Teague can't finish in the lane anymore. I've seen him miss so many wide open layups, so many uh, shots just getting sent by the center. Um, and, and I think it's an issue of just guard depth in general with this team. Uh, Marcus Smart is not shooting well from the field, 39% on the year. Just offensively, their guard depth is atrocious. And I think those are the two positions they have to focus on the most. They expected Tristan Thompson to come in here and be that rotational five. They expected Jeff Teague to come in here and be a rotational guard. Peyton Pritchard is out playing Jeff Teague right now. I think at this point in the season, the Celtics desperately need another guard and another center if they want to compete. And I don't really know what you do with the cap situation because you already inked these guys up. So uh, I think that they are, I think it's desperation time for the Celtics. They have to go out and get somebody else at both of those spots. If you could theoretically move Kemba, would you do it? Ooh, that's, I mean, it is so dependent on what I get back. Um, I don't, we've talked about this before. I think Kemba is still the ideal fit, but if it's not healthy Kemba, then yeah, I definitely explored the options. Yeah, I just think it's tough to find a buyer for him as well because I'm scrolling through my brain thinking about who would I really want. If this Celtics team could get a Kyle Lowry, for example, I think their entire prospects change. The problem is if the Raptors are trying to get off of an older point guard, why are they going to take a longer contract from a guy who's not as good, who's more injury prone, all these things that Kemba presents to you? I don't know where that value is, but I do agree with you right now. They're not in that contending tier, and Pritchard has been fantastic, but his role is not as a real point guard yet. He is effectively a combo guard. He's a guy who can be lethal off the catch and all that, but he's only 23 years old. He's a rookie in this league. He's not going to run your second unit at a high level. So they have problems, and we will see if they can improve. Let's look at the exact opposite tier of team, though, and you mentioned them briefly earlier, the Utah Jazz, who just continue to roll along, Logan, and for being the best team by record, we probably have not talked about them enough this year. They've won 20 of 22 games. They did lose last night to the Clippers, but had won nine straight before that. What do the Jazz have to do to become your title favorites? I mean, probably trade for LeBron or, you know, Steph Curry, sign uh, you know, prime Michael Jordan. Carson, honestly, I think by the numbers, I think the Utah Jazz maybe should already be the favorites in the NBA this season. Um, first of all, their offense is – Exceedingly fun to watch. They're fourth in offensive rating this basketball, as you touched on last week. They've got one of the best screeners uh, in basketball in Ruby Gobert. And more importantly, you've got three of the best pick-and-roll runners in basketball. Donovan Mitchell, nine points per game on 60% from the field out of the pick-and-roll this season. Jordan Clarkson is 94th percentile in the PNR. Mike Conley is 83rd percentile in PNR. But more importantly... This is literally the greatest three-point shooting team in NBA history. I mean, they're number one in three-point attempts this season. They're number one in three-pointers made, and they're fourth in three-point percentage. No team in NBA history has shot this many threes per game and has been this efficient. And defensively, they are still dominant. Second in defensive rating this season. As I mentioned earlier, teams make the least amount of threes on them. Teams attempt the second least amount of threes on them, and they hit them at the fourth worst clip this season. They are good at limiting teams from shooting them, and they're good at making them miss. And it's all because of Rudy Gobert. You broke it down last week, Carson. He, they shoot 7% worse on their overall field goal percentage against Rudy. They shoot 4% worse from deep, and they shoot 13% worse from within six feet. But to answer the overarching question here, I don't know, man. They're just – there's always – because they are going to have to go through Kawhi and PG and LeBron and AD, I don't think they can ever be title favorites until we see it on the floor. Yeah, this is a tough one. I wrote down that they have to win 62 to 64 games out of the 72-game season, basically be one of the greatest regular season teams of all time. And even that, I don't know if I could hold myself to because it really is just going to be a matter of do I actually feel like they can overtake the tremendous star power 
that they're going to be facing. And also teams that have role players playing at an incredibly high level in both the Lakers more on the defensive end and with the Clippers on the offensive end. Both teams will have a scary combination of two-way dominance when they are fully locked in. At the same time, I don't want to act like you can't win with, with great shooting, a number of offensive weapons, elite team defense, a transcendent defensive anchor, which is everything that the Jazz have because we've seen teams win like that. We saw it with the 2014 Spurs. That was their formula. And I think that you could argue very easily that the Jazz are even better than that team. The question is, is the competition of a higher level? And I think that the answer is yes. These super teams that we are talking about now are complete. I would say they have more dominant guys at the top when you have a LeBron AD combo, or if you look out east to what the Nets have, where they are just transcendent. And I do think maybe the Jazz are the second best team in basketball, honestly, because of their strength on the defensive end as compared to a team like the Nets, maybe. Their top five offense, their number two defense, they make the most threes in history. I would say Clarkson and Ingles off the bench are the best sixth and seventh guys in basketball. The ball moves. They beat everybody. They don't have weaknesses of, say, the Bucks teams in these past couple of years where you could point at it and say, okay, what happens with Giannis in the playoffs? His value is going to diminish when teams are so keyed in on stopping him, when there's less transition, when he has to close games. And all of that was predictable. I don't see those weaknesses with this Jazz team. Donovan Mitchell can close at a high level. Do you see anything that says this isn't going to translate? Or is it just that it's not going to translate enough to beat a team like the Lakers that you believe in that much? No, I think it does translate immediately to the playoffs. This is one of the deepest teams in basketball. But if, as, we're touching, if, as we're talking about playoff time, Carson, I think the most important thing for this Jazz team is to lock up that one seed. You want to have by, by all means, and I think this is, why, this is a – the Anthony Davis injury helps out the Jazz so much. It opens the door a little bit for them to, you know, create separation between them and the Lakers. This is the time where they need to continue this run – because you just want to avoid having to play the Clippers and the Lakers until the Western Conference Finals. Um, that is the most important thing for the Jazz this season, I think, is getting that one seed. Um, as to answer your question, no, Carson, I think it all translates. You've got a lot of great perimeter defenders here. You've got a lot of great perimeter shooters. And I know that this formula has let down teams in the past. We've seen it let down the Bucks time and time again. But the thing about it is just everyone is so good at playing their role and committing to it on this team. And uh, no, I think it translates immediately. And Carson, I would give them a fighting chance if Anthony Davis is healthy. Like, I think this team is going to take uh, either L.A. team to seven uh, in, in a seven-game series. I think the Jazz are that good. Yeah, they're better than the past couple Bucks teams, in my opinion. I don't care what anybody else says, what the numbers say. I never thought either of those teams could win the title. I do think the Jazz can win the title. I'm not going to bet on it. I would certainly not bet against them. I would certainly not bet on them head-to-head -head against the Lakers, but – they continue to win these games in a way that I think is convincing and that I do think translates. And now it's just really, can all these individual guys sustain this level? Can they sustain this kind of offensive efficiency? Because the defense, although it wasn't this good last year, I don't really question because we're so used to having jazz defenses that are top two in the league because they have Rudy Gobert. And last year was honestly a bit of an anomaly in that they weren't that kind of truly elite defense. So I have faith in them on that end. And Again, they just continue to win. They continue to prove themselves. And I feel a little bit cruel saying that they have to do so much to become my title favorites. But that to me has much more to do with the immense respect I have for the Lakers, their two-way ability, the depth that they have assembled in their roster. Obviously, the star power at the top where when you have two top five players in basketball, you almost always win the title. And there is an overpowering element there that I think very likely comes into play if we do see these two, these two teams square off in the Western Conference Finals or anywhere else when the basketball is really meaningful. Uh, let's move on now to a team on the very different side of the spectrum yet again. Logan, 
we had a little bit of faith in the Cleveland Cavaliers earlier in the season. We thought maybe they could be a play-in team as they started strong. They have just been on an absolutely brutal stretch as of late. Are they just done? Okay, I want to clarify. I at no point in time thought the Cleveland Cavaliers were going to be a play-in team. I thought they could have been. Um, and, and you're not foolish for thinking that. Uh, with how potent their offense was at a point in time, it certainly looked like Cleveland may be able to compete. But I do think they're done, Carson. They've got the worst point differential per game in the NBA. Um, and I think the most telling stat about the Cleveland Cavaliers this season is that they're 25th in assists per game. I mean, there is – the Cavaliers might be my least favorite team to watch in basketball. There's just no ball movement. There's no off-ball movement. Everybody just kind of stands around on the perimeter waiting for Sexton or Garland to kick it inside or, or pull up a shot or turn the ball over. I mean, teams don't even have to really game plan, man. They just kind of put a little pressure on Sexton and Garland and trap them, and it's over. Uh, it, the biggest thing, though, is, is off-ball movement. When you've got other shooters on this roster, Carson, like Chetty Osman, like Dylan Windler, like whoever's on the floor, there just has to be some sort of of movement in general. And it's not like they don't have the personnel to do this, Carson. They should run more uh, pick and roll with Sexton. He's 72nd percentile in the PNR. And I think JaVale McGee has to be out there more than 15 minutes a night. If you, I, I get, I get why he's not playing minutes, right? He's not going to be conducive to winning games in the future because of his age, but he's still a really good, valuable player here on the defensive end as an, and as a rim runner. Um, he's 80th percentile as a role man, or just try it a little more with Allen. There's just no rhyme or reason to this offense. And it's so frustrating to watch. It, it's just heavy ISO. Uh, go get your bucket. I, I don't know if this is down to coaching. I don't know if this is player commitment, but the Cavaliers aren't fun to watch. It certainly seems with the Andre Drummond situation that they have given up in total. Um, yeah, I, I do think the Cavs are done. I think they've given up on this season. I think they're going to try to get uh, hit, it, hit it again in the lotto and and see what happens. The, the Cavaliers ultimately just just frustrate me beyond belief. Yeah, I think that they're done too. And part of the reason that I was optimistic about them is they're playing really good defense to start the season. I thought at some point Kevin Love would be back and there is no timetable on his return, even though he apparently resumed basketball activities like two weeks ago. So obviously they just don't care if he plays or not, just like they didn't want Andre Drummond to play and want him out of the organization. Now, I think you talk about coaching. This for a moment seemed like the only good coaching job J.B. Bickerstaff had ever done. And now it looks like another bad coaching job. One of the weird things about this team is you have a couple of dudes who can be flamethrowers in Garland and Sexton, and they are not coached to play efficient basketball. They're told, okay, you can take those long twos, particularly Sexton, who's taking 3.73s a night, making 41% of them. It's just ridiculous that so few of his shots are coming from beyond the arc like that. It's not good basketball. And even more so, Carson, one of the biggest issues, because of these off-ball opportunities that aren't being explored, Carson, Colin Sexton and Darius Garland this season are both over 40% as a catch-and-shoot, uh, catch-and-shooters from deep, and they're both over 40% from deep in general. Without this ball movement, you're not even getting, you're not even maximizing their talent by using them as off-ball shooters, which they should be. You should be running plays for these guys. You should be running something. It's just the Cavaliers, this team has so much potential to be so much better, and they just aren't doing anything about it. Right, because one of them has to be off ball at all times effectively, and I agree with you. It just feels like they're too content to be like, okay, let's suck again, but that's so frustrating for these young guys like Sexton and Garland, who I know want to win in this league, and yeah, they're 22 and 21, but it's really a frustrating situation to be in when you have talented players, and yeah, Drummond was hideous to watch this year. It was the ugliest basketball I've maybe ever seen from an individual player playing at a high volume with just these terrible post-ups. And sometimes he's not giving you full effort on defense. 
And I don't think he was the right fit here at all. But you have a player of that caliber and you don't play him. Kevin Love is a guy who I really think could help this team as a floor spacer because they make the least threes in basketball. They shoot the worst percentage on threes. Again, that does not make sense when your two best players are volume scoring guards. It just shouldn't be that way. But Love would certainly help alleviate some of that. But really what it comes down to is this team was just fraudulent. And there were some fun parts about them that I really got excited about. I love Darius Garland. And I think that his level has come back to earth a little bit, although he's still playing well, in my opinion. Maybe it's not winning basketball, though. And Sexton has really come down to earth. Over his last 15 games, he's given you 20 points per game on 45-35 splits. This is a dude who was playing at an all-star level and now is not playing close to that. And it's not the kind of offense that contributes to winning to begin with. And then I mentioned the defense was off to a good start. Now they're 29th in defensive rating over the last 15. Chetty Osman is a guy who was playing really well to start the season. He's been playing worse. It's just everything about this team even with the acquisitions of Allen and Prince was a bit of a mirage. If you had any expectations of success. And I think part of it is just organizational. They don't want to win. And that's unfortunate. Well, and that, that brings up a question. I want to ask you Carson. We've established that we think the Cavs are giving up. Are they throwing these games just, just on purpose? No, they're not throwing the games, but they're doing a classic tank. Well, yeah, I don't mean inherently like the players, but organizationally, you think the Cavs are losing on purpose. Yeah, I think that they're tanking again. Why are you not playing two of your more valuable veteran players if your goal is to win? And yeah, again, there are issues with Drummond. I don't think there are issues with Kevin Love when it comes to winning, though. He could do a lot for this offense, and it's hard for me to believe that he is still at the point where he can't play if he's been doing basketball activities for a couple weeks and obviously didn't play last year because... They just don't want him to play. And they're going to have to find a way to offload that contract at some point. You're not exactly selling his value when you don't let him get out on the floor, but clearly they do not want him here long-term. So that's an interesting question. I think the other obvious question that is really relevant right now for this Cavs team is with Drummond not playing with the team, clearly no intention of playing again, is going to be traded or bought out somewhere. Where would you most like to see him go? Well, honestly, there, there are really two signature spots. Um, the Celtics, as I touched on, Carson, I think would be an awesome landing spot for Drummond. I don't think he helps spacing issue-wise, and we've seen the value of having a really good floor spacer alongside Tatum, Brown, Kemba, um, and Daniel Tice. He's shooting 39% from deep. So I, I think that the, the three-point shooting aspect would be missed, but he is such a tremendous rebounder and defender. I mean, he immediately uh, takes them up defensively. I would love to have him in the starting lineup. I have Tice maybe run closeout uh, minutes for them if they need shooting at the end of games. Um, so I think Boston is certainly a landing spot I would like to see. I, I just think he helps them in, in every way imaginable. But another spot, and I think I, I would love this. I think this completes his team. I would love to see him go to Brooklyn. I mean, DeAndre Jordan fits perfectly with what they want to do offensively as a rim runner, as a lob threat. Andre Drummond fits this team perfectly defensively. All of these guys, as you have mentioned before on the podcast, Carson, look engaged defensively. Um, and Drummond would be able to just help them on that back end. He's one of the best five defensive fives in basketball. And it's also a point of, it, it's a position of need, that backup five spot for the Brooklyn Nets this season. Um, since getting rid of Jared Allen, which I think was necessary just because he wasn't going to get rotational minutes, um, Jeff Green is running the backup five for this team. And players are shooting 2% better within six feet. It's not a horrendous mark, but he's just not an elite rim protector. If the Nets get an elite rim protector, I think it puts them over to the top. I think it might make them title favorites. It's, it's the one aspect of their team that they're missing. And um, I don't know. I think Drummond just takes this team up, you know, ability-wise to another level. 
Yeah, so those are the same two teams that I wrote down as my favorite candidates for Drummond. I think that the Nets are ultimately the more exciting one as well, just because I think that they are more clearly one piece away. We can talk about the Celtics, but I ultimately don't think that Tyson Thompson are the reason that they are underachieving. If I had to point to one thing, I think it would be Kemba and the offensive struggles that they've had. And Drummond is not going to help you there, as you mentioned. But the Drummond fit in Brooklyn would be really interesting because he could do a lot for their defense. Now, he's not an elite rim protector, shot blocker, dynamic athlete, and all of that. He is obviously a tremendous rebounder, though. He has really quick hands and is always among the league leader in steals just because he's willing to gamble and he's aware of when to do so. And I think that he's a physical big body to have down there and all of that. So he would help your team defense. I don't really have any question about that as long as he's committed. My concerns, though, would be offensively because he sucks as a role man. He's in the 14th percentile this year. He was 27th percentile last year. Doesn't have any sort of in-between game, maybe a floater game that could keep defenses honest. And then he doesn't have these sort of explosive athleticism, crazy catch radius that a guy like DeAndre Jordan does that makes him excel there because DJ may be holding this team back defensively where they are 26th in defensive rating. And that is inexcusably bad. If you're going to try to contend 25th now, excuse me, but he does work really well with this team offensively and is sort of a floor spacer of his own, if you will, just because of the elite lob threat that he poses and Drummond doesn't bring that. So I don't know if it would put them over the top as a title favorite at the same time, I would rather take a little bit of a step back offensively and improve hopefully by more defensively if you bring Drummond in. Well, I completely agree with, with the defensive aspect of that. I, I have another team I want to ask you about, though, Carson. Um, apparently, Yusuf Nurkic is getting back on the floor for the first time since his injury. Uh, him and McCollum are both getting practice time in. Do you think he fits in Portland at all with their defensive issues with Cantor at the five? I would stay away, and here's why. Drummond has a big ego, man. He tries to play basketball like a star, and – if you just watch how he plays offense, he asks for 10 posts up a game and he's atrocious at it. And I'm concerned unless you put him in a situation where he thinks I can contend, I am the fourth guy here or whatever in the hierarchy. You send him to Portland and he probably thinks, oh, me and Dame, we're going to win this thing, man. And I don't know if he can acquiesce to play winning basketball in that situation. I think he needs an ego check. And I think if you send him to Brooklyn, and by the way, that would have to be on a buyout, mm -hmm. then because the cap won't work otherwise, then I think he understands his role a little better. I also think I have no interest in clogging that pain anymore. I think Nurkic is a better player than Andre Drummond, even if he's maybe not as much of a plus defensively. I think his offensive value is tremendous and he's at least fine on the defensive end. And I don't think you want to have another Hassan Whiteside situation bringing Drummond in there alongside Nurk, which I think you very easily could have if he doesn't play to his maximum potential. I mean, I, I get it. I know exactly what you mean with his, with his ego on the offensive end. You see it every game that he was playing with Cleveland. Um, I don't know, though. Like, I, I just – I feel like if he went to Portland, I don't, I don't know how he could still command those, those post opportunities. They're just – I think you're right. I think an ego check is probably best for his career, but <laughs> I just can't imagine him trying to take the ball out of these great perimeter players in Portland uh, in this hypothetical – well, maybe you're right. It's just speculation. I also think that he feels more of a need for Brooklyn to begin with. I think that the Blazers will be really, really good once Nurk is back. And obviously the Nets are going to be really, really good no matter what. But the difference between really, really good and title favorite lies mostly with that rim protection and interior defense. And that is the area that will really determine their season, in my opinion, for the most part. So with that, we are going to take a break. We'll be answering a few more questions about the beautiful league that we call the NBA on the other side. Uh, but for now, I've been Carson Brabber, and this was Logan Camden, and you are listening to Nerd Sesh on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com.
Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. From our quick little break there, we are going to still be talking NBA here. And we're actually going to begin by diving into a team that Logan, you just mentioned on the other side of the break, talking about as a potential destination for Andre Drummond. The Portland Trailblazers have been on fire as of late, having won six straight games, surviving in spite of injuries to both CJ McCollum and Yusuf Nurkic, just flamethrowing on offense. So Logan, let me ask you, is their success sustainable? Um, I think it is, Carson. And they do it. They, they play basketball in such an unorthodox way. This team is dead last in passes this season. They're 30th in assists per game, despite running at a league average pace. Um, but this also helps them in certain ways. Uh, they're only second in turnovers per game because of the lack of ball movement. And I do want to keep this recent stretch uh, of winning basketball in perspective. Uh, they've only beaten one team with a winning record over the winning streak. It was the one-seeded Sixers, but they haven't been playing top-notch competition, but they still have had the third-highest offensive rating over the last five games. And I think the biggest reason why this is sustainable is because over these over this winning streak, they've just gotten production out of two guys that they previously weren't earlier in the season. Um, Rocco, over the last five, has been putting up eight, uh, six on 53% from the field and shooting 52.6% on four attempts a night. He's shooting 50%, uh, 56% on catch and shoot. Um, on the season, he's shooting 33% uh, from the from deep on five attempts a game. And the other guy, a nerd says favorite, uh, one of Carson's favorite players in basketball. I'm sure he's got uh, a, a lot to say about him, um, and I'm going to let you take over here in a minute. Gary Trent Jr. has been absolutely balling out over the last five games. 51% from deep on eight attempts a game, up from 44% on seven attempts a game on the season, 21 points per night. Um, his overall field goal percentage is also up near 10%. Uh, I mean, obviously, this is all run by Dame. Dame is having a historically great offensive season, but uh, they just – they have been getting production out of these two guys that they weren't previously before. And it's going to be tough to sustain. I don't want to say that, you know, this is going to be something easy. Uh, they've got the eighth-worst defensive rating over the last five games. They've got the second-worst defensive rating on the season. Uh, Ennis Cantor is one of the worst defensive centers in basketball. He's also one of the laziest. Uh, off of screens and lane, he shows zero desire to close out on guys and contest shots whatsoever. He just doesn't really care. But if they keep getting offensive production that, like this out of Trent and Covington, uh, I think this is very sustainable, Carson. I think it's kind of sustainable. And the primary reason for that is their defense is atrocious. And that has not gotten better regardless of the uptick in team success that they may have seen. And it's crazy to me that they're the four seed right now. It's really, really impressive. Dame deserves to be commended for that. And CJ was off to an insane start to the season, and they have not missed his value on the offensive end, which is crazy primarily because they are just one of the best shooting teams that we have seen ever. They're 39% from three on the second highest volume in the league. And because of that, they are fifth in offensive rating. And you mentioned the isolation heavy style. It's so interesting because there are so many individually skilled offensive players on this team who have such terrible defensive issues. Mello has been really inefficient on this season for the most part. Now his value as a catch and shoot guy is there, but it's a lot of Mello out of the post, a lot of Mello mid range, and that's not good basketball, but he's obviously a skilled offensive player. Cantor is another guy who can be super efficient for you, just getting buckets out of the post, but is so atrocious defensively. And the fact that they have won that battle between good offense versus terrible defense for the most part is a little bit scary to me because I don't know if that's sustained. Now, I do think what's true is they can be about as good without CJ as they are with CJ because you have guys like Gary Trent who maybe can't supplement that one-on-one -on -one creation, but – 
who make it impossible to try to single-handedly focus on Dame and take him out of the game. Gary Trent does not have much of a offensive game outside of being lethal off the catch and being lethal on pull-up jumpers. He can't really get downhill. His handle isn't there yet. But man, can he shoot that basketball. He's one of the best shooters in basketball, point Blake. And when you put a guy like that alongside Dame, who demands so much attention, who has such tremendous gravity, who will kill you if you let him just attack out of the pick and roll or if you let him attack out of isolation, then a guy like Trent has tremendous value. But I just think this team is not quite as good as their record would say. They're 13th by net rating on the season. They're 28th in defensive rating, as you mentioned. And you just don't see teams be elite or be a top four seed in their conference with defense that is that terrible. I think it's worse than some other teams that we've talked about, like the Nuggets. I think it's comparable to that of the Mavs, maybe even worse than theirs. And they've been really bad on the season there. So that's why I would only say kind of. I do think they can be a great offensive team for this entire season. But I also think this defense is really telling and they're not going to get up to be league average. They're not going to be respectable there. They're going to be atrocious there all year long. Even if they're a high seed, like four or five, do you see this team winning a a playoff series? I don't think so. If I'm going to compare them to a team like the Phoenix Suns, who we'll talk about later, I would much rather have their two-way prowess against the Nuggets. I think it's close because the Nuggets have their defensive issues as well. And they're both really explosive offensively. So that would would be an interesting that would be an interesting series, I would say, because of that. But I don't feel great about this team right now, even though I was more optimistic about them in the preseason. And they're playing really well. But again, it's just really hard to be really good when you're that bad on one side of the ball. Do you think, and, and this, would, this, would, this question would uh, take use of Nurkic's minutes a little bit more out of the lineup, is all this team missing? Do they need more perimeter defenders? Do they just need a really good defensive five? I mean, What, in your opinion, what position fixes a lot of these defensive issues for Portland Carson? I think that what they really need is a legitimate rim-protecting center because we saw them bring in really good individual defenders in Rocco and Derek Jones Jr. And Gary Trent, when he wants to be, I think, is still a plus defensively. And yet, they have remained a terrible team defense. And part of that is when you sub Trent in for McCollum, then you also are subbing Cantor in for Nurkic. And I think we might see that if they had a starting five of Dame, Trent, Jones, Covington, and Nurkic, that that could actually be maybe an okay-ish defense. But we haven't been able to see that, and we won't see that this season because obviously they're going to start C.J. McCollum. I do think still, and I pray, that Gary Trent has done enough to prove that he deserves to start when this team is fully healthy again. But I don't know what Terry's thoughts. He was resisting this fact for quite some time. And now that he's giving you 20 a night efficiently, maybe that changes things. But I, I'm not positive that it does. I mean, what more does a man have to do? He's been excellent in replacing CJ this season. So I noticed, though, that you put Rocco and DJ. Would you start CJ and uh, Trent alongside each other? I would, yeah. But I don't know if that's what's actually going to happen. I think it works, though. I think that, that we saw it in the bubble a couple times, and it worked really well. I think that Trent can absolutely guard threes. And I think that, again, when he's in a role where he doesn't expect to be the second guy offensively like he has been, I think you see him play better defense like we did last year. I think he can be more of a role guy, which is really what he's most suited for, again, because his one-on-one creation is still somewhat limited there. So they're a fascinating team. So great offensively. We'll see if they can sustain that. And it'll be really interesting once they get fully healthy again. Let's talk about another team out West that – We've discussed a decent amount this season, but they continue to demand that we talk about them because of their play. The San Antonio Spurs are sitting at 16 and 11. They are the sixth seed out West ahead of the Nuggets, the Warriors, the Grizzlies, the Mavs, all these teams that we had higher preseason expectations for. So Logan, 
we have to ask at this point, are the Spurs a legitimate playoff team? I mean, I definitely think they're a legitimate playoff team. Uh, they're, they're one of the deepest in the league. I don't think – I don't know if a team is deeper than the San Antonio Spurs this season, uh, but I don't think they have a prayer at winning a playoff series. I think they're a really good, well-rounded offensive team. They are excellent on the defensive end. Um, they right now are ten, uh, seventh in defensive rating, and uh, I attribute this uh, success on the defensive end to Jakob Pertl's growth as a defensive anchor. Uh, players are shooting 8% worse when defended by him and are shooting 16% worse within six feet. He's in the 99th percentile of defensive points per possession, and the Spurs are 21 points per 100 possessions better when he's on the floor. Um, you know, I attribute to uh, perimeter defense. I think Rudy Gay and DeMar DeRozan have been excellent on that end as well. And, I mean, they're just offensively, they're just kind of mediocre. There's a lot of different guys who can get a bucket here. Uh, Lonnie Walker, uh, DeJounte Murray has been good in recent memory. Uh, Derek White, when he's on the floor, has been all right this season. But they're just they're just good. And, and there's still a big issue on this team, Carson. I have discussed it every time we bring up the Spurs. If they would continue with this defensive prowess, and if they would just adjust and shoot more threes, it's so frustrating because – I can see it. I can see this team maybe winning a playoff series, maybe upsetting a team um, because of their excellent, because of how good they are on defense. If they would just take more threes um, and they've got good ball handlers too. I mean, DeMar DeRozan and Kelton Johnson have been excellent in the pick and roll, but offensively they're limited. And that is ultimately what I think handcuffs this team. So you say absolutely they're a legitimate playoff team. You think they're among the top eight teams in the West, top 10 teams in the West? Well, it's weird because if you ask me if the Spurs are a top 18 talent-wise, I would say no, just because they don't have uh, the star power of even a Dallas or a Golden State. But depth-wise and overall-wise, yes, I would say they're a top 18 team out West. I don't think that they are. I'm not sure that they're a top 10 team out West when all is said and done. And I don't mean to disrespect San Antonio. And that really, the top 10 claim is just because I think that when the Rockets are fully healthy again, they can be dangerous. Maybe the Spurs are still better, but I certainly don't think they're top eight. No way am I taking them over the fully realized Nuggets or Warriors. And I think that the Mavs, as they round into form and get healthy, will certainly be a better team as well. I still can't get there with this team. And the primary reason is I just don't think they have enough offensively. They're 21st in offensive rating. And as you mentioned, bottom five in the league and three-pointers made. I do think their selling point is depth. As you mentioned, a second unit of Mills and Pirtle and Rudy Gay and Derek White and Devin Vassell, that excels. That is about as deep as any second unit in basketball. But I think there's still too much to Rosen, as you mentioned, settling for these mid-range jumpers. DeJounte Murray, as much as I like him and as much as I think he's improved, still not there as that offensive weapon from beyond the arc yet. And I think that that is ultimately going to handcuff this offense. I also think that when you give legitimate minutes to LaMarcus Aldridge, you are sacrificing something on the defensive end. And although the Spurs have been good defensively this season, that is in large part due, I think, to, as you mentioned, the Pirtle minutes, who has always been exceptional as a rim protector and I think has never really gotten enough credit for it as far as his per-minute rim protection value. But it's just the offensive end. There's great depth here, but there's been great depth here in years past, and it's certainly better than years before because of the progress of the young guys who are really legitimate basketball players. But they've also all come down to earth to a certain extent. I still like Walker and I still like Ken, Keldon Johnson and I still like DeJounte Murray, but you see some more inconsistency shooting from the perimeter and Murray and Johnson. You see Walker just generally less consistent, not contributing to winning as much as maybe you would have wanted. So I can't get there with this team. 
Carson, I do want to touch on one thing that you mentioned, uh, and that, that's LaMarcus Aldridge. I, I don't think you can play him anymore. He's such a liability defensively. He doesn't really bring you, you know, exceptional three-point shooting on the other end. I think somehow the Spurs have to move off of him. And Carson, I think overall, the San Antonio Spurs are in basketball limbo. Yeah. I don't really know what you do to – they're not going to win a title this year. They've got a lot of really good players – how do you move on from being a really good average team to should they go into a full rebuild? Like what is the next step for San Antonio? Well, I don't know why we're saying they can't win a title. I think they can absolutely go out there and win a title. Look, they're in a better place than they have been for a few years now because a, they have actual blossoming young talent in Murray and in Johnson and in Lonnie Walker. And they are finally getting basically all of their contracts off the book. DeRozan is off the books. Aldridge is off the books. Rudy Gay is off the books. Patty Mills is off the books. So they can finally actually launch that rebuild. And I think that that is absolutely what they do. They've done a great job of getting value out of these mid-late first-round picks in the Lonnie Walkers and the DeJounte Murrays and the Keldon Johnsons. But it'll be a lot nicer when they actually have real lottery guys to choose from. And I think that that is certainly what they are trending towards because there's talent here. If Luka Samanich turns into something, if Devin Vassell continues to progress, there's a lot of talent. And it's just about finding that foundational piece that I don't think they have yet. And you get that at the top of the draft. So I think that's absolutely the direction they have to be trending. I think they know that as much as DeRozan has done for this team, trying to keep them afloat, as much as Aldridge has done for this team in years past, and as fun of a basketball player as he was to watch at his peak, I think you just have to move on. And I think that they are fully aware of that and that they hung on for too long already. And now it's time to let go. Let's talk now about a team that is based out of lovely Phoenix, Arizona, where we are currently sitting in the Bill Austin radio studio. The Phoenix Suns are playing really good basketball team, and you predict them to be a top four team in the West before the season. They are playing like it right now. Logan, should the Suns be considered a favorite to win a playoff series this year? If they end up as a three to five seed, I think so. I mean, right now uh, they would draw the five seeded trailblazers. Um, but if they drop any lower Carson, uh, you're drawing the jazz, the Lakers or the Clippers. And I think that's a death sentence out West. I don't think any team is, is taking any of those teams down. Um, the Suns have been awesome though, this year, as you mentioned, 10th in offensive rating, seventh in defensive rating. They've got a reliable offense, uh, you know, predicated on the pick and roll CB three, 66 percentile Booker 71. And they run P and roll, uh, pick and roll uh, between the two, about 16 possessions a game. They transformed Aiden into a really productive role man this season. And more importantly, uh, the Suns are surrounded by uh, really reliable shooters. They've got five guys over 40% catch and shoot this season. Galloway, CP3, Nader, Payne, Booker, uh, Cam Johnson is also an excellent three-point shooter. And they've benefited uh, from their additions defensively. Uh, CP3 is still an excellent uh, perimeter defender. Jay Crowder has been awesome on that end. Um, they're an exceptional team, Carson, with two deadly clutch performers. When games come down to closing time, I trust the Suns to win it every time because they have Chris Paul and Devin Booker. They're just good at getting to their spots and getting off, uh, you know, really contested shots uh, or, or, you know, getting open. They, those two guys are deadly in the clutch. Um, they're exceptional, but this is going to – they're winning a playoff series. It's all dependent on the seeding. Well, I think that to me, this question basically means, are they a top four team in the West? And I think that they are a top four team in the West. And you mentioned it's the really elite team defense that they bring to the table. And then this offense is fun because I think that this is a really ideal situation for CP3 to be in because it's a place where he can just play how he wants to. He can really dictate the offense, right? He can handle the ball for 
as long as he wants because he does love to pound the ball into the ground a little bit and just watch things develop around him. But he can afford to do that because dudes move so well off the ball here and there are so many shooting threats. Obviously, Bridges is such a brilliant cutter and is such a lethal spot-up guy, and he's incredibly fun to watch operate off of the offense of, of Paul and the offensive gravity of Book. And then Book himself is having a great season and is such a valuable off-ball player in the 90-something percentile as a cutter where he brings you great value, can be a lethal catch-and-shoot guy, can be a lethal catch-and-shoot guy for mid-range, and is just constantly coming off screens and trying to get open in creative ways. And I think that CB3 is excellent at watching that develop and then finding him. And so I think that the offense has been able to thrive because of that and then also the value of a shooter like Cam Johnson and other guys who get in this rotation, a bench unit that has played pretty darn well this season. And then on the defensive end, I think that you have to give Aiden the majority of the credit for developing as a really good rim protector because people can talk about Chris Paul all they want for setting the tone or whatever. That's fine. He's 35 years old. He's a good defender. That doesn't really matter all that much. What matters is when you have a dude who can actually be a deterrent around the rim who can affect shots there. And that is what DeAndre Aiden has been this season. He's not elite per se, but he's pretty darn good. And I think that that has done a lot to propel this team defense. I'd say he's good. Uh, There's still he's he's got negative defensive points per possession. He's got negative on off splits. Look at his rim protection, though. I'm talking purely about as a deterrent around the rim. He holds people a decent percent below their normal field goal percentage, and that's his job, I think. So, I mean, is there anything? Are there any sore thumbs that you think stick out on this team? Is there anything else Phoenix needs? If they were trying to be a true contender. Yeah, but if they're going to just try to be a really good playoff team, no, they have way less holes, in my opinion, than the Nuggets, than the Warriors, than the Mavs, than the Blazers, any other team in that tier. And I think that also you mentioned the factor of just trusting this team to grind out tough games. That's something that was very prominent for OKC when CP3 was having just a all-time clutch season, and he still gets in that mode. His just little mid-range game, his stop-and-pop game, his mid-range step-backs when it comes to closing time, it is disgusting. And as much value as Book has as a score, it's been CP3 time and again taking over in those clutch situations. So that's another reason I have faith in this team is they're gritty. They can grind out those tough games. I trust their defense more than just about any other of the teams that we've talked about. And I think that their biggest weakness is certainly less significant than that of any of the other teams. I don't even know what their biggest weakness would be. <laughs> I'd say their biggest weakness is probably Dario Saric. But Saric hasn't even been healthy for most of the season and – I don't know if we need to go around criticizing Dario Sarge. What's up with the Dario Sarge criticism? He's just, he's not a good cutter, man. He's not, he doesn't really do anything exceptionally well. That dude is, <laughs> Dario Sarge's value is maximized when you can use him as a playmaker. That man never even touches the rock when he's on the floor. Okay, well, I agree that his value is maximized as a playmaker, and maybe we aren't seeing the best version of Dario Sarge, but I don't know. I think Dario Sarge has some value. You can play him out of the post. He can run a little offense. He can definitely knock down a, an open three and whatnot seemed a little bit slanderous to go after Dario. There. Uh, he's shooting 31% from deep this season. So I don't know how good he is at shooting. Uh, I, I do think okay, they well, need... he's a career 36% three point shooter and he's a career 84% free throw shooter. If that tells you anything about his touch. <laughs> I like how Suns talk has devolved into Dario Sarge talk. Yeah, man. Um, I, I do think they need one more defender to really be contentious. Uh, so Carson, do you think uh, on a bigger scale, they, they win the first playoff series. Do you think they hold a candle to the Lakers Clippers or jazz? No, not really. Uh, just because I think that if you're going to compare them to the Jazz, I don't think they're as good on either end. I don't think they're as deep. I don't think that their top four guys are as good. I don't think their next four guys are as good. Just in no way do I think they compare. And then to the Lakers, obviously not for some of the reasons that we've talked about previously. And for the Clippers, I think 
their offensive value, their pure shooting to me is so tremendous. And if I'm going to give the advantage to one team and grinding out close games, it may be the Suns in most matchups. It's not going to be the Suns against Kawhi Leonard, who really does just have that superhuman takeover ability. So no, but I think that they are the best of the rest. And that's a pretty good place to be in for a team that has obviously just been struggling to remain competitive in this league for so many years. And we can have the debate about who's more important to winning for this team between Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Personally, I don't think it's a, an essential debate to have. I think that it is absolutely basically impossible to separate one from the other. I think that they both have tremendous winning value right now and they're propelling this team to the top. But of course, also the depth is a big factor and it's been fantastic to see from this Suns team as a whole. I mean, I'm still, I'm still taking Chris Paul, but okay. Yeah, that's fine. And I might still be taking Devin Booker because I think his offensive value is more significant. And I think that if Chris Paul had been with this team for an extended period of time, they would not have been a good basketball team. And then if Devin Booker was the implant who came in and changed things, he would be getting more of the credit proportionally. His on-off splits have been ridiculous on the offensive end for some time. Last year, once they gave him an actual point guard, they went from being the worst offense in basketball with him off the floor to the second best with him on the floor. Right now they have the best offense of all time when he's on the floor. And with Chris Paul, they're actually slightly worse on the, on the floor than they are with him off the floor. So just some things to sprinkle in there. But again, we don't need to have that debate right now. And in fact, that will do it for us here today on Nerd Sesh. This has been bundles of fun. As always, you can go ahead and check out our most recent NBA show. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your stuff. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore session on Instagram at nerd session. With that, I've been Carson Greber. Alongside me today was Logan Camden, and this was Nerd Sesh. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.